Well, have you ever had an experience where you set out to do something, but you missed an important step, and so the whole thing went wrong? Anyone ever had a situation like that? I think we can all relate to that, right, at some point in time. This past uh, Christmas, I got my nephew Ethan a drone. Ethan's six, a lot of you know Ethan, and Ethan is like in this real remote control phase. He loves everything, everything remote control, trucks, cars, whatever it is, he loves it. And so I got him a, a drone, and this was the first drone that he'd ever had, and, uh, and so he was pumped. He, he couldn't wait to like get out there and, and try it out. But neither of us had any experience with flying drones, and so I was trying to slow him down, right? I'm trying to tell him, you know, buddy, we got to, like, read the instructions. We've got to figure out how this thing works before we take it outside. But Ethan really wasn't having any of it. You know, he has, Ethan has, he's got a lot of strengths, but patience is not one of them. <laughs> Some of you can probably relate to that, and if you've ever met a six-year-old, you know that patience can be a real struggle uh, for little guys that age. And so he insisted that he already knew how the thing worked, like just intuitively, like he could feel it. Like he's worked, he's worked remote control things before. He's like, I got this, I got this. Let's just go, let's give it a shot. And so I thought to myself, you know, the worst thing that could really happen is we'll get out there and we'll like struggle with it for a few minutes. And then I'll have to say to him like, you know, Ethan, we really gotta go and read the instructions so we know how to pro- properly fly this thing. And so we took it outside and Ethan, of course, just starts recklessly like pressing buttons and moving joysticks, and before I knew it, like, this thing, like, shot up into the air. And it was, like, going up and up, and uh, it started to, like, shift over top of the roof, and all of a sudden, Ethan starts panicking, right? Because he's like, this thing, like, he's like, it's, it's, it's way too high, we don't know how to control it anymore, and so he, like, gives me the remote control, and he's like, bring it back, bring it back! As though I have any idea, like, he's the expert, right? Like, I have no idea how, what to do with this thing. I've never flown a drone before, but I, like, you know, he's, like, really upset, so I thought I'll give it my best shot. So I start, like, you know, trying to, to figure out what to do with these buttons, and at first it seemed pretty hopeful, like, it, it kind of it started to come down a little bit, came down a little bit, but then it started to move over. <laughs> and it went over, and it went over, and it went over the neighbor's fence. And then all of a sudden, it was like, <laughs> it disappeared. Like, we couldn't see the drone anymore. We're like, where'd it go? And I'm like, I'm like, don't panic. Like, I'm sure we have it, but the drone was gone. And then all of a sudden, you know, we heard it crash on the neighbor's porch. And so don't worry, there's like a, a happy ending. We were able to go and like knock on the door and be like, hey, can you help us out? But uh, it was one of those moments where it really struck me that there are some things in life that you just can't bypass. You know, there are some steps that you really just shouldn't skip. There are some things in life, if you don't really un- understand how they work, it's just a matter of time before they crash in the neighbor's backyard. You know what I'm saying? And last week we started a sermon series on grace. And in Christianity, grace is one of those things that we sometimes try to like skip or, or leave out, even just uh, in, our, in our practice. We can kind of take off with our faith and we can go through all the motions and we can follow all the rules and say all of the right things without really getting a hold of what it means to live in light of God's grace. But grace is actually central to the gospel. It's the foundation. It's like the way the whole thing works. 
If you try to skip grace, you've lost the whole heart of the gospel. Grace is the thing that makes the good news good. But it's something that we all really kind of struggle with. A while ago, I I worked at a women's shelter in Hamilton, and uh, one time I was working the night shift there with a really good friend of mine, and it was just the two of us in the office. All of the women were sleeping soundly in their bedrooms, or at least that's what we were hoping. And uh, there was a Bible sitting on the counter that we'd got a hold of. One of the women had requested a Bible, and so the staff had tracked one down so that we could, could give it to her, and it was just sitting there. And I'll never forget this moment. My friend uh, picked up the Bible, and she read the cover, and it was one of those good news Bibles. You know, so the cover said, good news Bible. And she looked at it, and she just kind of laughed, and she tossed it down on the counter, and she said, good news? I've never thought of it as good news before. And the reason she couldn't wrap her head around how the Bible could possibly be considered good news was because in her experience, Christianity was all about a bunch of do's and don'ts. There was a set of rules that we're supposed to follow, and if you follow them, then you go to heaven, and if you don't, then you don't. What was missing from her understanding of Christianity was grace. Grace is the thing that makes the good news good. So just to refresh our memories from last week, let's do a little pop quiz. Who's up for a pop quiz? Zero. Zero hands is the number of hands I'm seeing, but we're going to do it anyways. Okay, so does anybody remember what the Greek word means that is most often translated into grace in the New Testament? Does anyone remember what it means? Gift! Is that Travis? They said that? Oh, gold star for you, Travis. That's right. The Greek word that's normally translated to mean gift in the New Testament, sorry, that translated to mean grace in the New Testament, really means a gift. And what is it that makes a gift a gift? A gift is something that you can't earn, and it's something that doesn't need to be paid back. And throughout the New Testament, The words used to talk about these different kinds of gifts that God pours into our lives, not because we earn them, not because we deserve it, but because we have a generous God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And the most foundational gift that God gives us, the gift that we focused on last week and the gift that we often think about when we hear the word grace, is the gift of salvation. This is where the whole thing starts the gift of being made right with God through Jesus' death and resurrection so that our sins are forgiven and we're given new life in the kingdom of God that starts now and lasts forever. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. And last week we talked about how some of us live with a constant sense of shame and feelings of inadequacy, and others of us kind of struggle with pride and live with a sense of self-sufficiency. But the invitation of the gospel is to stop focusing on ourselves and whether or not we have what it takes, and to instead live in a posture of dependence 
on Christ. Now, as difficult as it can be for many of us to really receive and experience God's grace, our topic for today is even more challenging than what we talked about last week. Because this morning we're talking about extending grace to others. And grace is a really beautiful, healing, life-giving thing when it's offered to us. Right? There's so much freedom in knowing that we're forgiven and that God accepts us with all of our weaknesses and struggles and that he loves us unconditionally. Like That's good news, right? We can all agree that that's good news. But when it comes to extending grace to people who have hurt us or people who think differently than us or people who have different colored signs on their lawns from us, it doesn't always feel quite as beautiful does it? Offering grace to people that we don't think deserve it is really, really hard. And yet, we know that as followers of Jesus, we're called to be people who experience God's grace and then let it overflow to the people around us. So let's start here. What does it mean to give somebody grace? What does it mean? Now, that might seem like an easy question, but I'm going to be entirely honest with you, okay? As I was like preparing for this sermon this week, thinking through this, I actually got really stuck on this question. So take a minute to think about that. How would you explain to somebody what does it mean to extend grace? As I was sifting through, through it this week, uh, I went into the daycare office. If, if anyone who works at the daycare in the office knows that kind of part of the job description is you have to talk to uh, the pastors about theological questions as they're sifting through them, right? You guys know it, it falls under like the other duties <laughs> as required, right? That's where that falls. <laughs> so you better give Savannah a warning there, Kelly. <laughs> this is what she's getting into. So I went into the office and we started kind of bouncing around ideas. And, uh, and someone said, I think that grace is sometimes just like not saying anything, you know, when someone messes up. If we don't say told you so, you know. It's a pretty good answer, right? That's part of it. That's grace. And we talked about those situations where two people are in a fight. You know, they have a lot of resentment towards one another and no one wants to admit that they're wrong. And how, like, it takes grace to kind of set aside our bitterness and our anger and to approach the person and to be the first one to say, I'm sorry and try to make things right. That's grace. We talked about how it takes grace to embrace and love people who see things differently than us. Especially when it comes to those really heated, controversial issues that really get our blood boiling, right? It's part of grace. And so I guess what I'm saying is, Uh, We had a really good conversation, but it didn't really answer any questions for me. And then I spent some time looking through scripture, and I realized why I was having a bit of a hard time with it. The reason I was struggling was because scripture doesn't actually talk about us giving grace to other people. It doesn't. It talks about a lot of the things that come to mind for us, When we talk about grace or think about grace, for example, Scripture talks an awful lot about forgiving others, right? There's a story in Matthew 18 where Peter approaches 
Jesus and he asks Jesus how many times he should forgive somebody that, that sins against him. And he throws out, just as a guess, like the number seven. Peter figures seven is probably enough times like for forgiving somebody that wrongs him. And Jesus says, no, like that's not enough, right? He says, you need to forgive somebody 70 times seven times. Essentially saying like, there is no limit to this, Peter. Like you just keep forgiving. Scripture talks about being patient, about making space for other people's weaknesses. Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, always be humble and gentle. It's a good reminder, isn't it? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 tells us not to be irritable or demand our own way or to keep a record of the wrongs that people uh, do against us. In Galatians, Paul tells us to help people out when they fall into sin and to kind of be humble and gentle as we do it, to save our critical comments for ourselves. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. And then throughout the New Testament, again and again, we see uh, the early church struggling through the challenges that they faced as they gathered together around tables with people that they used to hate and judge. It calls us to all these different things that come to mind for us when we think about extending grace. But whenever scripture talks about grace, it's always talking about God's grace. It's always talking about God's grace. And then it goes on to paint all these different pictures of what it looks like to live as people who have received that grace of how we function in relationship to, uh, to other people, as how we live in community, as people who have been reconciled to God and reconciled to one another through the cross. Because that's what Paul says has happened in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul says, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward one another, was put to death. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other in this culture. Man, we think we're living in divided times now? These group of, groups of people, like they couldn't stand each other. There was this long-standing animosity that existed between them. But through the cross, Jesus reconciled them to God and to one another at exactly the same time. These groups of people with all of their differences and their history of violence towards one another were brought into one community and called to let the grace of God transform the way they interacted with one another. And so are And so when we talk about extending grace, we're talking about extending God's grace as it overflows through us. And that includes 
forgiveness, and it includes patience, and it includes embracing people in the midst of their messiness and doing everything that we can to live at peace with one another. Ultimately, what it comes down to is living in a posture of generosity towards other people. Not just like material generosity, right? We know we're called to that, but having a spirit of generosity towards others. It means living with hands that are open to receive the gifts that God pours into our lives. Even when we don't deserve them. Things like love and forgiveness and peace and belonging. And then holding our hands open to let those gifts overflow to others. Even when they don't deserve them. If you've done the, the infinite imposture prayer, this is what we're doing when we, we uh, do that posture of generosity, right? Receiving from God and then letting it flow out to others. And it all sounds really nice, doesn't it? Like in theory. In practice, though, this is really difficult, especially in the world that we're living in right now. We said last week, right? Our society is currently navigating a crisis of grace, And it's really easy to kind of just point to COVID as the source of all of our division. But do things really need to be this way? What's going on beneath the surface that's causing us to turn against one another instead of pulling together to get through all of this? What are we up against as we seek to live out this gospel of reconciliation in our fractured worlds? I think there are a few things that are uh, worth naming that really kind of make this challenging for us. And the first one's this. We live in a consumerist culture. Right? Consumerism is the air we breathe all day long on our phones, on our computers, on the billboards. As we drive down the road, we are pummeled with advertisements that are designed to psychologically manipulate us into believing that there's a hole in our hearts that only a bright, new, shiny object will fill, right? And we believe them. We believe them. It's part of living in a consumeristic uh, culture. Consumerism is all about getting as much as you can for the smallest amount possible. As good consumers, we want the best bang for our buck, right? And we want the best return on our investments, and we're willing to suck a few people dry if we need to in order to get there. And do you know what the biggest sin is in a world that's built on the consumerist principles of buying and selling? Giving and receiving. Grace has nothing to do with buying or selling, right? Like we said, you can't earn it and you can't pay it back. All we can do is open ourselves up to receive it and give it away freely. It's an entirely different way of seeing people and interacting with others. And so in our world, grace is totally countercultural. We also live in an individualistic society where we're taught that we need to learn to look out for ourselves. We need to be self-sufficient. Individualistic societies put a high value on the goals and the desires of individual people, right? Putting that kind of above the common good of the society. 
And so things like generosity and humility and sacrificing our own desires for the sake of others don't really fit too well within that framework, do they? They don't really make a lot of sense in a world that tells us that we need to do what we need to do in order to get ahead. So there are these really distinct values within Western culture that make it difficult for us to live in that posture of generosity towards others. And on top of that, there's just a whole bunch of things about being human that make grace really difficult for us. Social psychologists, for example, have known for a very long time that if you want to pull a group of people together, if you want to create a sense of belonging, if you want to create a community of people that has each other's backs, there is one thing you can do that will work more effectively than any other thing. It works every time. Do you know what it is? If you want to bring a group of people together, all you need to do is give them a common enemy. It's true. There's all kinds of research studies that have looked at that. They're really interesting, but I don't need to show you the research. Right? We know this is true. We all do it. It happens in elementary schools. It happens in our workplaces. It happens uh, in sports arenas. Right? It happens in political arenas. It happens on the internet. We love our enemies, just not like in the way that Jesus tells us to, right? There's something in us that loves to hate our enemies. And then there's just the very real struggle that we have on a personal level, dealing with things like our pride and our insecurity and our hurts. Sometimes extending grace can feel like we're enabling people or, or enabling injustice, right, in our world. Sometimes grace can feel like we're letting people get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. Grace is a beautiful concept, but when it comes to working it out in the messy situations of our lives, it can be hard, and it can be complicated, and it can be confusing. There's an author and a scholar named Miroslav Volf, which is like, isn't that the coolest name? If anybody here is expecting, like, please consider the name Miroslav. So cool. Uh, but this is uh, an author and a scholar who has some really amazing work uh, on the topic of reconciliation. And I was listening to him give a talk on YouTube this week, and he said something that struck me as really helpful as we kind of think through all of this. Because I didn't want to come up here today and make grace sound like it's any easier than it really is. I want this to be something that we can really imagine together about what it could look like as we work it out in the nitty-gritty details of our day-to-day -day lives in our polarized society. And I think that this could help. What he said was this. He said, living in reconciled relationships with others, so living in a posture of grace towards others, has to start with our deepest convictions. In other words... Extending grace doesn't mean slapping a band-aid on complicated problems. It doesn't mean denying who we are or what we believe in order to kind of meet someone halfway just to make a relationship work or expecting anyone else to do the same for us. It doesn't mean that we say things are okay when things are not okay. Reconciliation gets worked out 
in different ways, in different situations. And as we move through this series, we're going to look at scripture and kind of consider how specific aspects of grace uh, get worked out in our relationships with others. But it's always rooted in our deepest convictions. As followers of Christ, there are foundational beliefs that we hold about God and about ourselves and about others that shape the way we interact with other people, especially when we're navigating difficult situations. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Before getting ahead of ourselves and talking about how to navigate those tricky situations that we find ourselves in, we're going to spend some time focusing on the convictions we hold that help us to have a posture of generosity towards others, regardless of the situation that we find ourselves in or how it calls us to respond. The convictions that we hold that change the way we look at other people. In his second letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul says this in verses 14 to 17. He says, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one, at one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. So in this section of scripture, Paul is actually uh, defending himself. He's addressing some relational challenges that have come up with the Corinthians. There's been some uh, celebrity-style preachers that have shown up in Corinth who kind of spoke better than Paul, and they dressed better than Paul, and they were better looking than Paul. They had their, like, private jets, you know, like that kind of celebrity preacher. And, and they started to put down Paul, right, and say, you know, that guy's weak. Like, why are you listening to him? Look at all of the stuff he's been through. Like, he's not your guy, right? And so Paul, in this letter, uh, is, is addressing that. He's working this out. And in this, uh, these verses specifically, Paul's just uh, pulling the Corinthians back to the gospel that he preaches. That's what he's doing. He's reminding them of the core of the gospel that he preaches, and he's calling them to embrace it once again. And so if you read through this section of scripture, that context, context is just important because it helps kind of frame why Paul says some of the things he says in this, uh, in this passage. But if we look at verse 16, he says something really interesting. I think it's important that we don't miss this. He's just spoken about Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he says, so we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. The gospel changes the way we look at other people. It's like it gives us a set of corrective lenses that helps us to see people as God made them to be, rather than looking at them and seeing the labels that the world has put on them. So what does the gospel tell us about other people and how we should be looking at them? Like these are those core convictions that I want to pull us back to today. Let's start here. Every human being you've ever met is somebody who was made in the image 
of God. Right? This comes from Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this is a really beautiful idea, a really beautiful passage in and of itself, but it would have had really significant meaning to the people in ancient Israel. Because in their world, every single temple that people worshipped in, aside from the Jewish temple, would have had an image of the God on display in it. And that image of the God gave the people who would go to worship that God a sense of kind of being able to see their God, of being able to worship their God. And they believed that God's presence was there in that image, in that depiction of their God. Now, what was unique about the Israelites, this was really a distinction in this culture, was that they were told not to create images of their God. Right? But that doesn't mean that no images of their God existed, right? Because what were they told about how God made people? They were told that human beings were made in the image of God. We're the image, right? Not any one specific person, but humanity together as a whole is made in the image of God. So every single person in a unique way, was created to reflect the image of God to the world. Every single person has dignity. Every single person has worth. Every single person can teach us something about what God is like. One of my very uh, favorite verses from the message translation of the Bible is Romans 12, verse 17, where it says this, is four really powerful words. It says, discover beauty in everyone. Discover beauty in everyone, because it's there. It's there. Sometimes we get so focused on what we don't like about people or on the mistakes that they've made, and we can miss out on the ways that God made them to reflect his goodness and his beauty into the world. If you've missed every, if you haven't listened to a single thing in this sermon so far, and you want just like four words to take home with you, these are good four four words to walk away with and to, to take them as a challenge for the week. To discover beauty in everyone. Each and every human being is made in the image of God. The second conviction we hold about people that should shape the way we interact with them is this. Every human being is broken and impacted by sin. Now, that might not seem like a terribly helpful statement when we're thinking about how to look at people with a posture of generosity, but the first part really matters, right? Every human being, including you, including me, including the people that you love, And the people that you hate are broken and are impacted by sin. And remembering that we're all on level ground here can help us make more room for people's weaknesses and failures. We all have fears and insecurities. We've all done things that we regret. 
We've all had moments when we realized that we were wrong and changed our minds. We've all been hurt, and we've all hurt others. We all have stories that shape us, right, that kind of sculpt the way we look at the world. And when we remember that brokenness is just part of the human condition, it can quiet down that judgmental self-righteousness that tends to well up inside of us. Most people are doing the best they can with what they have to work with. Right? And that's a really helpful thing to remember when we're trying to live in a posture of grace towards others. Most people are doing the best they can with what they've got to work with. The third conviction we're going to talk about today is this one. Every human being is a person for whom Christ died and rose again. Nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. In the book of Luke, Jesus tells some parables that give us a sense of God's heart towards the people who don't know him yet. Some of you are familiar with this section of scripture. And in one of the parables, he talks about a son who runs away from home, who takes all of the family's money, all of his inheritance, right? He disgraces his family. And he kind of, he ends up, ruining his life, right? He ends up in a position where he has nothing. He's really stuck. He's eating like pig slop, right? And he decides to go back home thinking he could at least beg his dad to just let him be a servant. And then he could at least have like food, right? And have his basic needs met. But he, he figured he'd obviously given up all of his rights to be considered a son because of what he had done to his father and to his family, and so, you know, he, he sets back home and he's just reciting the words he's going to say to his dad. He's anxious, he's sweating, you know, thinking that it's, it's going to be a really tough conversation. But what happens? Jesus tells us that the father, as soon as he sees his son coming towards the house, the father runs out and he just wraps him up in his arms and he kisses him and then he throws him a party. Right? That's God's heart towards those who are lost. And what about people within the family of faith? The passage that we looked at uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 um, says this, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone, a new life has begun. When we're interacting with other believers, we are dealing with people who have been saved by grace through Jesus' death and resurrection. So we have this undeniable connection with them. Jesus says that we are one. He calls us to live in unity with one another, even when it feels difficult. And we're interacting with people who have the Holy Spirit working in them, right? Transforming them into the image of Christ. God's not done with any of us yet, and it's a gift to be able to walk alongside one another as we learn and grow together. You know, and it's a beautiful thing when a community of people is able to offer grace and freedom to one another to do that, uh, rather than criticizing each other for the ways we're falling short. And that's what God invites us into, a community where we're treating one another with the grace that he showed us through Jesus' death and resurrection. When I was a teenager, I worked at a drugstore uh, downtown. And because it was downtown, it was a really busy place. We had people from all different walks of life that would come in and out every single day. Some people from like messier walks of life, you know. 
And uh, when I started to understand this whole thing of grace and experience it in my life, it really did blow my mind. And I remember going to work and cashing people through at my till, one after the other, and just looking at them with this new perspective that I had. Focusing on the reality that the person standing before me, regardless of how rich or poor they were, regardless of how clean or dirty they were, or how well or unwell they were, every single person before me was a child of God, was a person that God loved. You think about you know, the people you love, the people that you know, who you, when you meet their kids, you just kind of automatically want to scoop them up. There's like an automatic love that you have for them because you love somebody that uh, loves them, right? And God loves every single person and calls them his children. And suddenly that started to change the way I felt towards people. It started to change the way that I spoke to them and thought about them. Not because I was trying really hard to be nice or holy or anything like that, just because I had a new lens to see people through. And it made every interaction that I had so much more meaningful. In the busyness of our lives and in the brokenness of our world, it's easy to look at people and see the labels that they've been given or the things that divide us or the weaknesses that they have. But the invitation of the gospel is to see other people through the eyes of Christ and to let God's love and grace flow through us and transform our relationships and our communities.